This is the MyMac Podcasting Network. Welcome to TechFan24. This week, it's all about the writing. Tim's got something new to write on, and we talk to somebody who's actually doing it pretty much for a living. And it's tech fan number 24. My name is Tim Robertson. I'm the host. And I've got David Cohen, the other host. Hey, David. Roger, Roger. How are you? Good, good. We've got a uh, special guest coming up in the second segment. His name is Richard Phillips. He's an author of The Row Agenda. I talked about it on, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago on the podcast in conjunction with the Kindle. Yeah, now you've got me hooked. Yes, it's good, isn't it? Very good. I, I, yeah. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, um, it's a rat- rattling good read, I think. One of the things I like about the whole Kindle experience, and the same thing with iBooks as well, is that you can download samples. Um, read uh, Some of them, they give you 30, 40 pages of a book. Yeah. And if you like it, you buy it. I think that's brilliant. And I, I don't remember if I bought um, the second ship, uh, the first book of the series, or if it was 99 cents, or I downloaded a sample and went, yeah, this is for me, and, and bought it then. I mean, yeah, it's, it's interesting you've got all those choices, really. I mean, at 99 cents, and even the later books, you know, later book, I think the second one is, is what, $5, something like that? Four ninety nine, you, yeah. Yeah. So you're not looking – I mean, you wouldn't buy the second book unless you enjoyed the first one. Right. Um, if you buy the first one, you're only spending 99 cents. I mean, you can't get a – you you can't get a secondhand pulp thriller in a in a secondhand bookstore for that virtually. That's right. So your risk level of risk is very low, even if you don't want to go to the effort of uh, of reading samples and kind of getting through that way. And and I think that's that's an encouraging prospect for for ebooks is the fact that you uh, certainly for some of them you don't have to spend a lot of money to get into them. Yeah, you could try before you buy, or it's just the cost of entry is not very high. And I think that. Uh, the author here, Richard Phillips, is is really smart of very low entry point, ninety nine cent, and then a more traditional, even five nine uh, four ninety nine is just, I mean, really nothing. Not not in today's market. No, I mean, books books are a lot more expensive. Lunch than that at now. McDonald's is more than that. Come on. Yeah. So yeah. and um, I, it's know, really I encouraging because as a wannabe author myself, and I've started. Um, have the option now to self-publish to a big audience is very appealing. And I was very encouraged after reading his first two books that, you know what, I can do this. And I've started. And as I talked about in the last couple of shows, the possibility of getting a 11-inch MacBook Air. And I took the plunge, David. I got it this week. Right. I have to agree with everything you said about it, um, except I will say, you know, you, one of your fears that you had when I was talking about possibly getting it was it might be too light to to use in my lap. Yeah, not the case at all. It's absolutely no. perfect. Yep. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Screen is brilliant. I use uh, Pages, and mm-hmm. I can go full screen, which it's just it blacks out the sides, white tech or white paper basically with the black text and that's all i see as i'm writing and it works just it's brilliant i love it and uh, you know one of the many criticisms that's often leveled at apple gear is that you know pound for pound it's more expensive than the equivalent pc mm-hmm. um you know and 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 with the macbook air people go who i could get a 10 or 11 inch netbook for that sort of uh, for much less than that sort of money but you're not getting the quality of the components no. and i think the screen is a particular standout on the 11 inch air and beyond that the keyboard it's a full size yeah. keyboard yeah full travel full it's slightly less depth than the yes. uh, than the macbook pros but it, it, the thing is it it to to type on it feels just the same you show um, me a, a a pc netbook that even comes close to this 11 inch air you can't. Yeah. There, there's no. just there, it, there's nothing out there. No, it's absolutely. it's a brilliant piece of equipment. I absolutely love it. Um, and leave it up to Apple, of course. You know, it, it's it's yeah. they finally have a spiritual 
successor to that 12-inch PowerBook G4 that everyone just loved so much. Yeah. Except it yeah. blows it away in every single regard. Well, you know, I, I, it still amazes me that talk about uh, kind of, I won't say learning from your mistakes, but kind of building on what you've done before. Um, you know, you and I were together in um, and at MacWorld when the MacBook Air was launched. Yes. And, you know, I remember the, the impression from many people was, wow, it's fantastic, but, you know, there's a lot of compromises and isn't it really expensive? Yep. You know, it was the most expensive. Um, 17.99. Oh, yeah. Now, talk about turning them out on its head. And that's purely <laughs> from, you know, learning from the experience, learning what people liked, didn't like about the machine. And at the same time, you know, that kind of vicious, uh, you know, um, optimization of production and production process and component costs that Apple has that they've actually turned it into one of the cheapest machines you can buy. It's amazing. Um, yeah, it is. It is, and I sometimes you do look at uh, you look at competitors. I know we're, we're not a pure Apple show here on TechFan, but you know I, I do wish sometimes that companies like Sony and and Lenovo and the, these other guys who who also build quality laptops will kind of adopt that same model of saying you know let's let's learn what people like and let's let's make sure we optimize to bring the price down so that are competing level for level. I totally agree with you. So with that laptop, obviously, um, I no longer have an excuse not to get back to writing. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, For me, it was inspiring to have uh, Richard Phillips on the show today. Um, Now, we've already recorded that conversation. We're recording this episode in kind of reverse order. We did the interview with Richard, and then we're coming back to record this segment, which is actually the first segment. So we've already done the interview. It was uh, was inspiring for me because – Here's somebody who's who did exactly what I want to do. And, you know, he's not a super genius. It's not like he discovered something that nobody else couldn't discover. He's a guy. He's a writer. And he did it. Now, I don't yeah. expect to have even a tenth of the success he's had. But I don't care about that. I just want to write and I want people to read what I write. Um, yeah. And I'm looking forward to to the process of writing myself, you know. I like the feel of my fingers on a keyboard. I like creating, not knowing what's going to happen in my own book because I haven't written it yet. It's that creative process I really, really dig. And there's now I have the technology to do so comfortably. And now there's a distribution channel that anybody can use. I mean, anybody literally could change their life with the technology that's out there right now without going through a publishing house, without signing all your rights away to your to your work to i mean and heaven forbid you make a couple bucks too yeah absolutely i mean it's nice to, if you're going to put that effort in and you enjoy sharing that with other people it's nice to get you know some sort of, sort of reward for that without feeling you're paying a whole pile of middlemen who are taking their percentage all, all along the line now, we're uh, a week behind on our episodes uh you were going to do a solo show last week but things came up yeah, I have to apologize about that, but um, there's a lot of changes going on within my employer at the moment. and um, It happens. You know, yeah, it, it does. I, it should, uh, should lead to some interesting shows in the future because I'm going to get to do a bit of travel and go some places I've not been before. And it's, I'm looking forward, from one respect, to kind of see what technology is like in parts of the world I've never been to before. And hopefully I'm going to be able to share that with you when, when I do that. That'll be awesome. I won't say, won't say any more at this stage until until uh, I know kind of what's going on. But some other changes. This is going to be the last podcast recorded here at the MyMac Studios in Battle Creek. Um, I'm actually closing this studio down, and for the time being, after this, I'm going to be setting up the studio back at my house where I originally started recording podcasts, and I did for quite a number of years. Uh, the reason being, quite honestly, is I'm not here enough to justify the expense. If we had a big, high-powered high-paying sponsor, maybe I could justify keeping the studio open for podcasting alone. But I just can't do it, David. It it doesn't make economic sense for me to keep this open, and I use it for maybe three or four hours a week tops. Yeah, it's, it's I think I think everybody can appreciate that. You know, times are difficult, and you can't always afford to keep uh, keep luxuries around. And certainly, uh, a, you know, your own dedicated studio is a... Is a luxury if you're not using it that much. I'm going to miss it, though. I mean, it's, oh, it sure was nice are. to come in, and it's quiet, and it's 
it's dedicated to one thing. I've got all my sound dampening stuff on the walls, and I have my own bathroom here in this office. It's just fantastic. Um, but, you know, my wife made a very compelling argument. Um, it's not just up to her. It was I kind of brought it up, too. I said, do you think I ought to close that studio down? And she was like, yeah. Uh, that yeah. means, though, that when I need to record a podcast at home, she's basically got to gather up the kids and leave the house for an hour or two so I can do so. Can't really podcast with little kids in the house. Just it just doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. No. So, this will be kind of you know Tech Fan Twenty Five will be. Um, well, actually, David, we're running into the same problem that we had last time. I won't be able to record a podcast next week. No, but I, I definitely will be able to record a podcast next week, and I've already planned out the show and what I'm going to do. Um, so um, you're going to podcast in the nude, aren't you? Uh, well, I podcast in the nude every week. Shh, I wasn't going to tell anybody. <laughs> So we've got some feedback, and uh, it's from kind of the MyMac family here. It's from Scott Wilsey. Of course, Scott is the host of Pocket Size Podcast, another podcast in the MyMac podcasting family. So let's listen to that, David, and uh, we'll be right back. Hi, Tim and David. Just wanted to send you some feedback on Tech Fan number 23. This is Scott. I apologize for contacting you yet again, as I'm sure you're sick of me. I am too, but I have no choice but to put up with me. Um, but I thought it was a great conversation that you're having with Jason regarding communication, uh, data transfer technologies, and also the future of how we'll get our content. I just wanted to have uh, to convey a couple of my thoughts on that based on what you were discussing. Uh, David, excellent uh, contribution and conversation about data transfer, wireless and wired. Very interesting, great technical details that you provided. I want to disagree with Jason's theory that Intel would... Uh, use Thunderbolt as a way of tying people back to the PC at the expense of mobile. Uh, Tim's right. PC and Mac are not dead, and they won't be for some time. However, I think Intel knows, these are my own opinions, but I think Intel knows full well that mobile is the future and that they have to get into that game with real uh, options and solutions, and and trying to hold people to the desktop is not going to happen, and they know that. So I disagree with that. Um, As far as content apps for TV to to get us rid of Comcast and to to get us the content we want. It sounds great, but here's my worry. Apple TV just came out with an update which put NBA and MLB on it. My understanding is the MLB is $20 per month. Now imagine all the stations and channels and networks that you watch now on your TV, and imagine if every single one of those cost $20 a month. How many would you have? Uh, It just... It can't happen that way. So I think that you know that by itself is not going to be our savior. It has to be a combination of brains and content being provided. You know, there has to be some sensible solutions. So I think the Netflixes of the world that can deal with a lot of different people at once, um, you know, even though that's slowly and they're held back by the networks as far as what they can stream and when they can stream it, you know, those are the w- solutions that are winning right now because they can get prices that are affordable to people. So I think it's still uncertain as to whether or not apps and everybody having a channel for their app is going to allow us to cut the cord without missing a lot of stuff. You know, I I mean, right now you can do that if you are willing to give up a lot of content, and, and, you know, certainly some people are, and that's a great choice. Anyway, just some thoughts, and appreciate the conversation. It's a really good one, really interesting, and keep up the good work. Bye. Yes, this was recorded on an iPad using my iPhone headset, so apologize for the noise. So thanks very much for the uh, feedback, Scott. You know, yeah, quite honestly, David, I thought the audio quality was great for recording on an yeah. iPad. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't you couldn't really tell that it was uh, it was an iPad headphone. No, absolutely not. And I encourage everybody to listen to Scott's podcast. And uh, again, you could find it at mymac.com. Look on the right hand side and just look for Pocket Size Podcast. It'll bring you to the iTunes page and you could subscribe there. Or better yet, we have a feed that has all the MyMac shows, David. Yeah, it's uh, got everything in there. If you go to mymac.com, there's a banner, or I'm sorry, it's not a banner. It's kind of a, what do you call it? A menu? A. Um, I don't even know what to call it. A tab? Is that, is that what it is? A tab? Tab, I think. A tab. Okay. It says My Mac Podcast Network right underneath the logo. 
If you click that, there's a nice long list of all the different shows that we produce. And at the very bottom of that list is one that's called Potpourri. And that has, if you subscribe to that in iTunes, you literally get every single show that we produce. That is the MyMac.com podcast with Guy and Gaz. This one, Tech Fan with me and David. Sam Levin's App Minute. Scott's Pocket Size Podcast. And last, but definitely least, because we just haven't been doing it lately, that's Geekiest Show Ever, which, you know, David, we really need to get back to. Um, it's kind of what Chad and I were doing, but – and I mentioned this on another show. I want to open up Geekiest Show Ever to other people. Yeah. And that includes maybe you and I doing a Geekiest Show Ever, and I've got a great idea for one. It's best themes, the uh, best theme music in a video game. You know, yeah, maybe we, you and I could do that, come up with three each. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that would be a fun show to do. Yeah, well, I, it's, it's, what's nice about doing Geek Show Ever is that um, you can take it in any direction you want. You can talk about anything you want. And, uh, you know, it can, sometimes it just kind of flows in off, off in its own way as a result of the conversations you're having. Um, but it's always, uh, if you're into all this kind of geeky, culty type stuff, it's always a good listen. Well, that's where we. That's why we started it because it was yeah. you, me, and Guy Searle doing the MyMac show. But you know, honestly, some of the best conversation was happening when we weren't recording. That's right. And we thought, yeah. you know, what we we that's what we need to be doing. We need to do a show like that. So Mark Rudd joined in as well and and built the website for us. Uh, I think you registered it, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, in fact, I just renewed it recently. Did you? <laughs> yeah. And. Uh, it, I feel guilty every time I think about it because I really like the show. I really like the name. I think it's a, a great name. Um, yep. The concept is right there, and it's a lot of fun to do, but we just haven't had the time to do it. Now, a lot of that is because Chad Perry and I haven't physically been able to get together at the same time at the same location and do it. Um, maybe with me changing the studio around, recording at home, will actually make that easier because I don't have to go anywhere, number one. Yeah. Uh, some of those shows I can actually do after the kids are in bed and asleep. So, I don't know. Yeah. Geekiest Show Ever is definitely going to be coming back strong. But if there's anybody out there listening that would like to start podcasting, maybe not on a regular basis, this might be a perfect venue to kind of get your feet wet and have some fun. Yeah. We had some feedback, some email as well from the – how did uh, – it, it's Jolly Jap, but – Guy and Gaz, he's, they've been communicating on Twitter. I think Guy called him the, uh, the MyMac official Twitter correspondent. Ah, <laughs> uh, right. Okay. So I, I sent that over to you. Go ahead and read that, David. Yeah. Okay. So um, Tim et al. You're et al, by the way. I, I don't know who al is. I've not seen al around here. <laughs> That's my nickname for you when you're not here. <laughs> there has been a lot of tweeting and such like about the iPad 3, generally now that the iPad 2, now with... Now, generally now that with the iPad 2, it is unlikely. An alternate view is that the positioning of the iPad 2, just enough, just in time, could make the iPad 3 more likely. To explain my thoughts, in the PC market, Apple has always been in the position of providing quality, not quantity. Not a killer position. However, in the iOS market, and in particular with tablets, Apple is generally calling the shots. If you look at the technology that Apple didn't put in the iPad 2, better video cameras, ability to work on CDMA and GSM, no LTE, Thunderbolt, to name a few, it could be assumed that they are keeping some goodies for the next iteration of iPad. Apple buying up the major parts of screen and SSD production, hence limiting the abilities of their competition, is an aggressive strategy. If we then connect this with an assumption that Apple timed the iPad 2 to castrate the burgeoning competition, we have an aggressive tablet strategy to not only promote the iPad, but also to bludgeon the market share of competitors. The above assumptions are a bit of leap of a, th- a bit of a leap of faith, but if you're approaching credibility, it will make sense for Apple to introduce the coup de grace of the iPad 3 in September, effectively finishing off the competition in the Christmas and Northern Hemisphere academic year, buying frenzy. You're right, and I don't take myself too seriously, but as a military planner, you have to consider worst-case scenarios, and your mind can get quite inventive. Cheers, jolly jap. Ah, uh, well, boy. Yeah, well, well I, there's a lot of assumptions in there. Yeah, and. <laughs> Well, as a military planner, maybe that's kind of what you do. You have to kind of assume and, and draw conclusions from, from the facts as you see them on the battlefield. I'm not sure I 
I completely buy the thesis myself. Uh, I, I buy a little bit of it. Here's here's the thing, though. Apple didn't release the iPad 2 to clobber the competition. It's no. been a year. And Apple traditionally releases a new product once a year, 12 months later. They, did it, they do it every year with the iPhone. They do it every year with the iPod. Uh, they haven't really done it with computers. Uh, those generally go about 18 months before a big refresh happens. Sometimes yeah. longer, sometimes shorter. Um, the iPad was right for a slight expansion of capabilities, and that's all the iPad 2 is. Apple never really changes something from year to year major. Um, when they do that, it's usually a mature product, and they completely radically change it, i.e. iPad or iPhone 4. It was a big departure from the first three generations of the iPhone, and it was yeah. the fourth one. So, but uh, they, it was I mean, they, of, they, yeah, they have done it occasionally. I mean, if you look at um, if you look at what they did with the iPad Mini, right? Which then went to the Nano. I mean, that was a big change. I think iPod, about, ma- yeah, the yeah the iPod Mini and the iPod Nano. I think there was only um, it was probably only about eighteen months between the the launch of the Mini and the replacement with the Nano, and then the Nanos themselves every year of of most years iterated been, yeah but but in quite radical you know there was only there's only really i think it's between the the fourth and the fifth generation where it wasn't a really big change right um so so sometimes apple does this but you know what i think i think my concern with kind of uh, of what's what's being suggested here is that i don't think apple sees the need to obliterate any competition. I don't think Apple really sees themselves as having competition in this space. I would agree with that. You know, I, and I, I think, to be fair, I think probably Apple is not directly competing with anybody in any of their product lines. I don't think they think like that. I don't think they're looking... I think they're aware of their competition, their competitors, but I don't think they're saying, what do we have to do to beat our competition? I think that's not their starting point. Their starting point is, what do we have to do to make a great product that our buyer, that our users will like. Wouldn't it be and that's nice, this. Yeah, wouldn't it be nice if, nice if if more companies, not just in technology, but in every industry, did that? What could we make to make our product? What can we do to make our product better? Yeah, that would exactly. be such a fantastic thing, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And instead, you've got so many people with this kind of uh, what I've heard referred to on the internet as the Highlander mentality, which yeah. is there can be only one. Right. Well. Hell, no, not at all. There's enough people out there who can buy probably 15 or 20 different classes of tablets or phones or MP3 players. The fact that many of them choose not to do so doesn't mean that Apple has to destroy its competition. In fact, that would be a very bad thing. I think Apple's approach is, here's the iPad. A lot of people like it. What can we do to make it better? What have some people asked for? We can put cameras in it. We can put FaceTime on it. We can make it faster. We can give it more memory. We can, you know, make it thinner, make it lighter because a lot of people don't like the weight. And I think that's what they've done. I think in terms of their competition, they're already so far ahead of of pretty much everybody else. Nobody has a coherent response to the iPad at this point that I suspect Apple probably didn't look at the competition particularly uh, much at all. And I don't think they need to administer a coup de grace and actually kill off the competition because there's plenty of room out there. I totally agree. Yeah. So we're going to wrap up this segment, David. We're going to be back. Well, you will anyways, a week from now, next Friday with another show. Yeah. Um, I'll be back the week after that uh, recording the first show f- back home in my office. And it's going to be weird to podcast there. And I've got a lot of stuff to move and I've got a lot of equipment to reset up. Uh, I've been recording podcasts on my laptop forever and ever, so... I'll be actually be back on my uh, my big iMac. It's a uh, i7, 27-inch. Uh, so I have a little that bit more. That should do the job. Yeah, it should. I don't think there will be any problem there. <laughs> uh, no, I, I guess the hard thing is going to be getting all the wiring sorted and, you know, getting whatever mixing and everything you have in the, into the equation again. It is. And, you know, I've got that kind of set up the way it is now, and I'm going to have to rearrange a, quite a few things. I have to stick my recording microphone somewhere and the arm that holds it, and it's, it's not going to be fun. I'm glad I've got two weeks before I have to start recording again. But, uh, no, I'm looking forward to it, though, to be honest. Not, not having to come out of my way here just to do a podcast and then drive back home again 
that always seemed kind of strange. Um, so I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. You didn't tell me what you're going to do on the next show, so don't. I well, don't want to know. Yeah, it's, I'd, I'd like to keep it as a surprise because um, you know I kind of have a have an idea, but I, I don't want to. Uh, I, I I want to be able to respond to um, to anything that happens between now and then. So are I'll, you going to record just, on Friday or you're going to record earlier? I don't think so because I'm probably going to have to be traveling to Northern Ireland next Friday, so uh, I'm going to have to do it some other time next week. Okay. Um, and I may, what I may actually do is do it in bits and pieces. Awesome. Um, uh, I'm actually going to be, in fact, thinking about it, I'm going to be traveling to Northern Ireland Thursday night, so I could actually do it there if I take my gear with me. So, I look forward to hearing it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to doing it, actually. It should, uh, it's, I can, as I say, because I have a kind of a clear idea what I want to do, that means um, I can start planning and structuring it a little bit early, which is novel. Absolutely. <laughs> For us, absolutely. So with that, Dave and I are going to wrap up this portion of the show. Stay tuned because we do have that interview with Richard Phillips coming up next. Uh, I think you guys will really like the interview. It was a lot of fun for both David and myself. In the meantime, we'd love to hear feedback from you guys. Uh, feedback at MyMac.com is the easiest way. David, where can they find you on Twitter? They can find me at, at David B. Cohen, C-O-H-E-N. And I am at my Mac at uh, on the Twitter universe, or if you look for me on Facebook, it's just Tim Robertson. I'm sure that there's a, a few of them up there, but mine's completely open. I don't have any privacy settings on there. So if you want to see what my wife looks like, go to Facebook and you'll find out. But she's mine, all mine. Must be so pleased. Yes, she is. She is absolutely. So with that, we're going to wrap up the segment and uh, stay tuned for Richard Phillips. And as promised at the beginning of the show, we've got a special guest this week, David. We've got Richard Phillips. He is an author, a best-selling author on Amazon.com, publishing directly to the Kindle. Now, I'm going to cheat, and I'm going to read his bio right from his website. Is that okay with you, Richard? Yeah, that'll be fine. (laughs) Born in Roswell, New Mexico, Richard was a graduate of West Point in 1979. I was nine years old trained as an Army Ranger, and served for several years as an officer in the United States Army. In 1989, when I graduated high school, (laughs) I'm just trying to make you feel older, Richard, Um, he graduated with a Master's of Science degree in physics from the Naval Postgraduate School, completing his thesis work at Los Alamos National Laboratory. He then spent several years as a research associate at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory before completing his tour of duty. Boy, I can't read it all today, can I? (laughs) <laughs> in the in the army, uh, you live in Phoenix. Your wife owns a restaurant. Yeah, she owns a, a cafe. It's a breakfast and lunch place, uh, kind of the neighborhood spot. It's called Easy Bread Co. So, you know, you Northerners, uh, we see a lot of you guys uh, in the wintertime, but you tend to go away in the summertime. Yes, it gets way too hot for us there. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're wimps, that's for sure. But it's a uh, nice seventy five degrees today. So, oh, that's awesome. Uh, it's like 29 right now outside here. So yeah, I'm not jealous at all. <laughs> so Richard, uh, I, it's been a couple months, but David and I were talking about the Kindle app on the iPad. Right. And I was amazed that with a Kindle, uh, the physical Kindle, the hardware itself, or the apps that run on a computer, desktop, my iPhone, my iPad, no matter where I'm at in my book, it simply remembers it on other devices, and it's just – it's fantastic. It really is, and it's the kind of technology that's really going to be, bring the electronic book to the forefront. Yeah, I'm, and uh, and that seems to work really well across the platforms. Like I've got my, my iPad here. I've got my iPod Touch, um, Carol's iPhone. We've got a, several Kindles. Um, so I check out, you know, how, how the um, – well, how the book looks, where the books look on on all the various platforms, and, and they do a really nice job of keeping things synchronized. Now, I do want to get into the book as well as kind of your process of writing, and I also want to get into kind of the industry as a whole and electronic book publishing. It's kind of a, 
a lot of topics there, but let's back up a little bit and talk about your current series, The Row Agenda. Now, I've read the first two books. You're, you keep teasing me with these news things on your website saying you've written this many chapters of this many. <laughs> and it's like, oh, get a little bit faster there, Richard. Come on, you're killing me here. Yeah, well, I've, I've uh, actually finished off the ending now. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm, I'm making a pass back through. I usually, um, once I finish it, I go back through, do a preliminary edit myself, clean things up a little bit. And then it goes out to my uh, official editor. And once uh, she's done with it, then I, uh, then I put them up on, uh, on Amazon Kindle usually first um, and then make them available in other uh, ebook formats. Uh, so, so that's kind of the process. And I, I, you know, I was one of the uh, early ones in on, well, I guess just right before um, it was clear that the... Uh, you know, that the ebooks thing was really going to take off. Right. Um, it's been, everybody's been talking about it for years and years, but it just, you know, Sony gave it a try with their ebook reader and their store. It really never took off. Right. Uh, there was a lot of question when Amazon announced the Kindle. And when it finally came out, there was still some question whether it was going to be successful. But I don't think there's any question now that Kindle has been just a huge success. Kindle is done for iBook or for book reading on electronic devices that Amazon did with iTunes for music. I mean, it's, it's just changed the game. Well, it's, it has. And, and uh, I think one of the things they did that was really smart was to make the Kindle app available for free download Absolutely. Uh, on all of these various platforms. So that's really uh, up to the availability. And I think that the Kindle hardware itself, if you don't have an iPad or an iPhone and you want more of a dedicated reader... The price is coming down every six months, it seems. Right. I wouldn't be surprised at all to see another drop uh, sometime this year. The, uh, you know, it's one thirty-nine now for the Wi-Fi version, uh, one eighty-nine for the three um, G slash Wi-Fi enabled uh, Kindle, um, and uh, you know the big big advantage. Uh, of the dedicated readers to include the Kindle is uh, typically they use an e-ink that that is very visible outside or in bright sunlight. Um, so it's not backlit, and you know there's argument back and forth about which is better, but uh, the battery life is certainly better on the uh, on the Kindle. Yeah. So as an author, how do you go about publishing to this brand new platform? I mean, traditionally, when you look back at the history of publishing, you would write your manuscript. You would submit it to whoever. Maybe they would accept it, maybe not. If you're really good, you'd have a talent agent, and they would shop it around for you. And then they would come back with you know, suggestions, this, that, and the other. And it was a long, long process. And most authors were never published because one person at these different publishing houses just didn't see it. Right. Well, and uh, this is, you know, it's just totally revolutionized um, publishing, and it's made it so much more available. I go around, uh, uh, I spend a fair amount of time talking to like book clubs and and writers clubs, uh, you know, where people are trying to uh, figure this thing out, and it's it's really made it easy. Um, essentially, you you know, you're totally right. I mean, before. If you're if you were unknown, you just had to be tremendously lucky that the right person uh, got a hold of your manuscript, and it, you know, assuming it was good. Um, and and that's subjective. Well, right. I mean, it, you you had a very small audience you were pitching it to. Typically, the big publishing houses. Um, if you don't have a big agency representing you that gets in their door all the time and comes in and says, "Hi, Joe, I got this new manuscript. I want you to, want you to read something like that." Yeah. You were yeah. you were just you were not going to happen. <clears throat> so, uh, and anyway, that's the way I started. I, I started out trying to get come to somebody's attention and eventually self-publishing, and <clears throat> and that's a catch twenty two as well because uh, okay, you self-publish and yes, it's available through Ingram, etc. Uh, but you're not on any bookshelves uh, except for maybe your local stores or a couple of stores you can talk into carrying your books. Um, uh, and this, you know, uh, publishing on uh, the Kindle platform is so easy. And actually, it's far superior. I've published on all the platforms, ebook uh, formatting. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but Amazon just has them uh, tremendously as far as their whole system. It's very easy to publish. Uh, you typically have a Word document, and you can just uh, upload that that document, see the preview of it on their site, um, set your pricing. You got to set up some bank account information and stuff like that because they make automatic deposits into your account. Um, and you get a great percentage. I mean, authors get 70%. It's amazing. Royalties, uh, which is unbelievable. So, and I mean, if, you, if you'd have gone the conventional publishing route, how would that compare in terms oh. of what you would see? Well, um, and I may yet go the conventional publishing route. I mean, there's a yeah. big debate. You know, there's a lot of authors are um, are balking at the way traditional publishers are handling uh, the royalty situation for ebooks because yeah. Yeah, what's one thing when they're doing all the legwork you know getting you published uh, you know actually having the thing produced in print uh, settling on the cover all this, uh, this stuff they traditionally Marketing. have to do right getting yeah. them out onto all the bookstores it's, but when they're not having to do squat <laughs> because right. I mean the author formats it and, and yes they can send it over to Amazon, but so can the author, uh, and then they're taking at least half the uh, royalties. That's really making some uh, traditional big main name authors uh, upset. Yeah. So, so with that said, you know, the whole thing uh, just works very easily. You get, it up, you get it uploaded, and then a few days later, once Amazon finishes their review process, it just shows up online. Now... I think I don't know if the original price that you set for the first book of the Row Agenda series was ninety nine cents, but when I came across it, that was the price. Yeah, and and uh, that is still the price. But you know, I kind of adopted. Well, I've I've got one advantage. I, I write a series. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and yeah, I was going to bring that up. You know, you 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 get me in with that basically almost a free hit. And then I'm an addict, and now the next one's going to cost me more. <laughs> yeah, the, the second one's four ninety nine, and um, I gladly paid it. Let me tell you, I was not even a quarter of the way through the first book, and at ninety nine cents, I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to give this a try. It's ninety nine cents. Worst case scenario, it's terrible, and it, it's it's the same price of a song, right? Not a big deal. Well, that's actually the the model I utilized was the really the iPhone app uh, or iPad app kind of a model, uh, the iTunes model. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, so, so yeah, I, because my cost is zero. Okay. Uh, right. You know, the cost. Other than your time. Well, yeah, but I mean the traditionally, uh, you know, if you've either got to go, you're going to get a very small percentage on, uh, paperback and hardback book sales once it makes it through the whole process, even with a big time publisher. Right. Okay. Um, and the cost is way higher, um. So, so it's just a lot, a lot of advantages for authors now to, uh, to get out there, get their stuff out there. And the, one of the other great things that Amazon has that none of the other ebook stores even have is they've got a really well uh, organized set of categories, uh, categories of books, subcategories of books, so that uh, it makes it easier for authors to become to have people find them because they can end up down in some uh, subcategory say under sci-fi <clears throat> that might be techno thrillers or high tech or something like that and you can appear you don't have to have as high a level of sales to break into that bestseller list in that cat that subcategory as you would to say as sci-fi as a whole gotcha yeah <clears throat> and then once you do that then people start to find you in that little specialty and you start to percolate up your sales and next thing you know you're rising in the next higher category so it's really a good system david did you have a question i was just wondering i i'm that kind of partly answered the question which is once you've got the book on amazon how do you go about promoting it and obviously that's that's one good strategy but do you, i mean how Obviously, a traditional author often goes on the uh, you know the publisher sponsored book tour. Have you kind of got your own model for doing that? Um, well, yeah. actually, I, I I did that before I published on uh, published the first one on the Kindle. Uh, but um, the reason I had said earlier I would pro- I was probably going to eventually be moving into a traditional publisher. They've got a much broader. Uh, 
distribution system. Uh, yes, you pay the price of you don't get as high, uh, uh, you know, as as good a royalties, but then you've got the availability of being available in stores and airports and things like that. Um, so I've, I, I have signed with a, uh, a literary agency out of New York, Janklo and Nesbitt, who are a, a really big agency. And, uh, and so they are in the process. I just signed with them. So they're in the process. As soon as I finish off Wormhole, they'll be uh, uh, pitching the trilogy uh, to various... traditional publishers? Right. Now is, you know, I, I'm a published author myself. Now, not on the same level as you are. Mine was tech books. But when you get right on to it, publishing is publishing. I got a set fee to write the books that I did, and I didn't get royalties. Right. And I really wasn't happy with the entire process. And at the end of the day, I said, this isn't the kind of books I want to be writing. But I didn't think anybody would actually give me the time of the day to write the type of books that I really want to be writing. Not quite in, in the same genre that you are, but something kind of similar. Right. And so I just started writing myself. I'm like 35, 40 pages into it. And I kind of backed off a little bit because I thought, you know, I, I have the time to write, but I don't have the time to try to pitch this to everyone in the world. And that's when I came back to reading your books. And I thought, wait, wait a minute, this guy is publishing himself. He's having a lot of success. I'm not necessarily looking for the success part, but just I want – like any writer, I want somebody to read what I'm writing, and hopefully, some of those people that read it will enjoy it. Right. Well, mine is, you know, my my story is basically pure entertainment. I, you know, I'm not a Hemingway. That's, or that's what like I'm that. doing. Yes, that's uh, what I want to be doing as well. Uh, so, so it's written more at the, you know, at the avatar level as opposed to some of the classics, uh, like 2001: A Space Odyssey, which I would consider a classic. Absolutely. Uh, you know, my stuff is just written for pure uh, entertainment. So, so with that said, uh, you know, I, I just totally believe that nowadays um, it, it, this whole ebook thing, and it just keeps getting bigger, is uh, makes it available, makes makes it where people can write and not feel like they're just wasting their time. And you're not limited to what somebody else tells you is good or bad. And you're not limited to, hey, you only write sci-fi. You only re- write mysteries. You only write horror. With the new publishing model, you can write whatever you want. Absolutely. You can write whatever you want. Um, I mean, you're responsible for whatever editing you do, uh, which is a good idea to get a, <laughs> yes. a pay for an editor. But uh, but at the same time, it's uh, you you have complete freedom. So it's really, really uh, a great thing. Is this your first series of books? Uh, yes, it is. Actually, I wrote, I, I've got one on the shelf, another series. It's a fantasy series um, that I wrote first, and I'll have to come back because my writing style has changed over the years. But mm-hmm. uh, I'll have to come back and kind of uh, go back through that when I decide to uh, publish that one. Uh, but this one's a, uh, a sci-fi trilogy. and and Now, when you say trilogy, that means that the last book is the last arc of the entire series? Well, yes and no. Okay. Uh, the reason I say trilogy is there's one central story, uh, you know, that inspired the name, the, the Roe Agenda. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's basically about these two spaceships that crashed on Earth, uh, actually shot each other down in the 40s. And one of them was found and one wasn't. But they, they, had, they each had an agenda which brought them to Earth. Uh, so the the story eventually revolves around ends up in the last one where uh, oh don't give it, any spoilers away uh, for me now <laughs> where the agenda where people come to understand these competing agendas and what they're all about uh, and what effect it has on Earth so so um, with that oh go ahead I, I was going to say you know that's kind of the hook of the story but I have to say it's it's the characters which. Right is going to bring people back. I have to say, quite honestly, um, you write a fantastic female character. And I think a lot of male writers have problems with that. They seem very, I don't know, maybe one or two-dimensional. Yours is a very fleshed-out, real character. Yeah, and that's um, funny you say that because, <laughs> because they start out, and, uh, and in the story, you, they essentially start out um, you think they're going to be very one-dimensional, especially the three main characters. I mean, yes. the, 
these yeah. three high school juniors from very comfortable lives, uh, almost unrealistically comfortable. Uh, they got great parents. They like school. They're good students. You know, I mean, on and on and on. Uh, and then they get thrust into the situation that starts to break all of that up. And and as the series progresses, I mean, they start to uh, they're going through a lot of adult situations that uh, that force that crack. The, uh, the facade away of who they thought they were, and they're just trying to discover, you know, who, who am I really? Uh, so, uh, so that continues, and, and as far as getting back to your original question, even though this particular Roe Agenda story wraps up in three books, uh, the characters that manage to survive, uh, I, I have other books planned for them. I have to say the, uh, the special forces, I, I'm, I'm horrible, Jack. Yeah, uh, you know he is almost becoming kind of an iconic figure on his own. Yeah, he's he doesn't very... have the special powers. At least you know I don't want to give too much away here, but uh, you know the way you created and crafted that character really gave him this mystique that was really appealing to me. And I almost want to see what his backstory is. I would love to see stories of that character before these events because I found him fascinating. Well, I was uh, actually <laughs> that is part of the plan. Uh, um, I will uh, come back and, and go back in time a little bit to the early days of Jack Gregory getting started with the CIA um, and how he became, you know, how he got his nickname, which is uh, the Ripper. The Ripper. Well, That's of course, awesome. part of it is, uh, you know, Jack is leads yeah. into that, but... Uh, but anyway, there's this uh, there's this backstory on him uh, that's begging to be told. So so he will be the prime character in some of the uh, follow-on novels. Okay, so just just one question about kind of development of the series. Obviously, um, you know, one of the, the the kind of the cliches of writing is write what you know. Um, and you were born in Roswell, and you've been in the military, and you worked in Los Alamos, and there's an awful lot of that in the book. So the million dollar question is. Does the U.S. really have a spaceship? Have you seen it? <laughs> I haven't seen it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but uh, but it is funny. I get asked that a lot, and 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 whether you know, it always seems like I'm dodging the question uh, because uh, you know I've gone on a lot of shows, of course, shows like Coast to Coast AM and stuff, and. Uh, and those are those shows are you know basically conspiracy shows, right? Uh, yeah. And uh, and so uh, the fact that I can't talk about a lot of the programs I worked on at the lab can be taken a number of different ways, <laughs> and some of which uh, uh, lead to a little of the mystique around the books, et cetera. Now, it, you know, it's marketing. It all helps, right? Uh, it never hurts. No, absolutely. Ba- oh, well, I guess bad marketing could hurt. Now, as someone who's, uh, you know, kind of stepping into a different arena of writing myself, I'm always curious to know what your process is of writing. Do you lock yourself away in a certain room and listen to a certain soundtrack? Do you, For how me, is your, the actual process go? Well, it depends. I mean, sometimes I just like to take, uh, take my iPad. I've got a Bluetooth keyboard. Uh, really, it's a Mac, uh, uh, keyboard. And, uh, I'll put on my headphones and, Pandora and put it on a station bike, uh, and then just kind of go for it. I'll sit outside or, uh, you know, in a different room, something to break up the work. Uh, right. Where it's not, it's not just like work. Uh, no. And and just write. And one of the things I found out when I actually several years ago when I was writing the fantasy series is I I got into you know I was just trying to break into writing and. Um, uh, I got into this phase where I I would write something I didn't really like the feel of it I'd I'd kind of rework it and then I'd read back to see whether it, and I didn't really like the feel before and so the more I wrote the harder it got to write anything new mm-hmm. because I just yeah, it's not quite what I think I could do better on that and you're reworking stuff you've already written and it was just horrible so uh, so what I finally decided is, hey, I'm just going to write this thing. I don't care how bad it is. I'm going to tell the story. Because the first pass, I mean, you're just trying to get the story out. Right. Uh, yeah. You don't, don't worry about what the dialogue's like or anything like that. So I just, I just try to write it, get it done. And then you've got all the time in the world to come back and, and tweak it, edit it, you know, change the way the dialogue is, uh, things like that. 
You know, it's funny you say that because that's kind of the, the path that I've been following myself. In fact, I said earlier in the show, which you weren't here for, um, I got the new 11-inch MacBook Pro, very tiny computer, and I absolutely love it. But the reason I got it is for writing. I can't do it. I've tried it on the on the iPad, and it doesn't work for me. But this really does work for me. It's perfect for my lap. That's how I like to write. Um, my previous writing efforts um, – I was doing exactly what you described. I would stop and I would go back and I would change it. And I didn't seem to get anywhere. With my new project, I'm not going back. And I'm just plowing ahead. And I figured when I'm done, then I'll go back and kind of go over what I was doing. So I'm glad that there's somebody out there that's had success and that's what they do. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think, well, for me, that's that's the only thing that works. Otherwise, it's too easy to get critical uh, and 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 then that just puts the brakes on you. Do your characters write the story for you? Because that's what I'm finding. I don't necessarily know what's going to happen myself when I sit down and start writing. It's almost that the characters themselves kind of tell me where the story's going, what they're saying, what they're doing, how they're feeling. I don't know until I'm actually typing the words. Um, yeah, I think that's very much true. I mean, the general outline, I know what's going to happen. I know where the story is going. Right. Uh, and when I sit down to write a chapter, I kind of I know what I want to accomplish in the chapter. But as you start adding in details and, and uh, you know, it's funny because you, you kind of see it in your head and then you're... It, you know, something they'll do that you wrote down that you thought was neat, the next thing, you know, that's that's taking you down a different path than what you expected. Yes. Yeah. And did, did you, during the process of, of developing the three-book series, did you plan the entire um, story arc out at the start, or did you know how the third book was going to end, or did you literally write them one book at a time? Um, well, I knew where I wanted to get to, um, at the end of the third book, um, over the course of the stories, uh, <laughs> you know, evolving as they were written, um, that's changed a little bit. But I mean, uh, but essentially, I had a I had a kind of a broad view of where I wanted to get to, and it does get to that point. Um, but but a lot of the details have changed uh, during the writing. And you're very. Uh, do you do you write a lot of notes? Do you have a lot of kind of a methodology for keeping track of what's going on in the story? Is it all kind of in your head? Um, mostly in my head, I do. Uh, you know, I'll uh, I'll do some sort of uh, brainstorm or mind map sometimes to uh, you know to keep the timeline straight. Um, yeah. You know, in this one in particular, I've got a, I've got several uh, not primary characters but important secondary characters, and they're off doing things uh, that. Uh, that at the time you're kind of wonder, the readers wondering a little bit now how is this going to connect back in to the main story and for that to work out you've kind of got it to sit down at some point in time and say uh, well let me make sure I've got all the details tied up that, that, that all these yeah. these little paths are coming together at the right time. One of the things that I see a lot of science fiction writers kind of fall into this trap is they spend way too much time explaining. The technology or whatever it is. If it's a time travel story, they try to explain the mechanics of time travel. If it's a spaceship, they try to explain why it can go faster than light rather than saying, well, he traveled through time or it went faster than light to move on with the story. You didn't fall into that trap of overly exposing what the technology behind what's happening is. Was that conscious on your part? Well, it was conscious on my wife's part. She's, yeah, she, uh, you know, she, she's my first uh, proofreader slash story uh, feedback person. Um, typically, after I write a chapter, she'll read it. Uh, and there were a couple of chapters early on uh, in the second ship, which is the first book in the series, um, where I started to fall into some of that trap. And and she would catch me and and say, um, you know, this. Is, probably isn't shouldn't be a textbook uh yeah and besides you know it's science fiction uh yeah it's got to be you've got to allow people to suspend uh their disbelief but and this science fiction uh you know it's not what what i would classify as hard science fiction it's uh, you know the story is about an adventure story and um and so hardcore sci-fi people that really like all that detail this this just isn't for them 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I definitely concur with that. I'm a, I am a lover of, of really hard science fiction, you know, um, Alistair Reynolds, Stephen Baxter, that right. sort of thing. Uh, and those guys, you know, they, they, write, they write stuff that, you know, you kind of think, well, you're, we're only two or three equations away from actually making that happen. You know, it, <laughs> it's so layered and detailed. But the thing is, that, that appeals to me in my background. But, you know, that, <laughs> my wife, for instance, will find that incredibly boring. I once explained some of the plot elements of one of the books I was reading to her and a friend, and they kind of burst into laughter because when you read it out loud to somebody who's not interested in it, it sounds <laughs> so ridiculous, you know, and, and, and so over the top. What, I, what I'm enjoying, I'm, I'm about, about halfway through, um, through the first book, The Second Ship, uh, and, um, you know, what, I'm, what I am enjoying about it is the fact that it's, it's rattling along at a really good pace rather than getting yes. bogged down in the, you know, in the details of all of that. I did, I mean, I... I did read a couple of criticisms on, on the Amazon site where, where somebody said, oh, you know, when, he, when they're, they're doing computer stuff, it's, it wouldn't really work like that. And I was, I was thinking, well, does it really matter? Yeah. <laughs> you know, does well, it really yeah. matter that you kind of justify how a virus might work or how the NSA might crack encryption or stuff like that? It, it's not important to where the story needs to get to, which is that is just the plot point that, that allows, you know, these, these characters to kind of do what they're trying to do, you know. Right, and well, and it's it's really funny too because some of those people are totally correct, <laughs> but yeah. uh, you know, there's this funny part. There's it's actually um, it slides by most people because it's a very visual thing, uh, but it's funny it, it, to a person that really is a detailed thinker. There's this there's this scene where uh, where Jennifer, who's uh, all these kids are very smart, and they end up being altered early in the in the uh, first book uh, by one of these ships. Uh, so, so there's this scene where she is um, uh, manipulating, producing, she's working on uh, uh, instrumenting uh, this, this cold fusion device that they've, uh, that they've built. Uh, and, uh, and she set, she, she, hooks it up to her laptop, and then she goes so far as to create this uh, kind of an old style, like if you've ever seen the old craze and stuff, they had twinkling lights everywhere, right? They had LED right. lights all over the place, and they were twinkling at high speed. It was really beautiful. Um, <laughs> so she goes through this, and she does this, and she's actually able to, uh, you know, like these people that have the, the binary watches or the hexadecimal watches. Right, uh, she's able know, to read she, the binary she can, code. Uh, yeah. She can see it as it's happening, and and doing that, uh, you know, and, and and the question pops into some people's minds is, why go to all that trouble um, to create this uh, this display that uh, you know you could have programmed that on your on your laptop, you know, you, <laughs> right. you could have if you wanted that kind of a display, you could do it on the screen. Uh, but the point is, was uh, you know, and the story is more about the visual effect of that. And and I would make the argument that in her case, she did it because she could, and and she liked it. Um, so uh, so there's a lot of things uh, about that. Uh, one other funny story about uh, technology is some of the uh, uh, some of the science that I do. Um, talk about in there has to do with things uh, for example there's a, a little use of quantum entanglement right. and, um, which is for those that uh, aren't familiar with it it's, it's pairing of particles, uh, quantum particles in a way that, that they, they, their quantum state is entangled. If you cha- make a change to one particle state the other one automatically changes without any information flowing back and forth between them. Whether no matter were, how far the no part. matter how far away they are, it right. happens inst- instantaneously. Um, well, you know, people gripe about because I, I use that in the story as a um, as a means of secure communications. Okay. Right. Um, well. For, for quite some time, uh, you know, it was thought that that was the, an entering, interesting effect, and, but you couldn't communicate with it because of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and the fact when you change a quantum particle, um, just the fact of, of, look, of looking at it, observing it, causes a change in its state. So you couldn't really um, use it for communications because you didn't know the starting state. Um, well, that's recently been disproven. Uh, in fact, there's a number of companies and a number of research labs around the world right now that are working very hard on exactly that technology. 
And I think a company in Japan just came out a story a couple of weeks ago has, uh, has demonstrated uh, uh, for the purpose of quantum computing uh, that very that very technique. So sometimes the people that are griping about some of the technologies um, would be surprised at how close some of this stuff uh, really is. Yeah, so, I, so, yeah, so they, they accept the 150-foot, you know, um, imp- impervious spaceship buried in rock. <laughs> They're worried that you may, have, you may have forgot to include your Heisenberg compensators in the uh, quantum entanglement communication system. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, and, and like I said, I, I don't write this as a hardcore sci-fi, and I don't, and I don't pretend to. But, but you know, I, I do find it hysterical when people – well, so – some people, for example, the most disbelievable thing they can find in the story is, well, these kids are unbelievable because, for one thing, you know, they're, they, they come from really happy families. They, they're good kids. They're not skipping school all the time. They're, I mean, this just is too unbelievable. But then you've got a couple of alien spaceships. I, that, they have no problem uh, with that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. It is kind of funny. What I like about the series is you don't wait, you don't make the the reader wait too much for a payoff. You introduce something, and usually relatively quickly in the series, there's some kind of a payoff, or there's some kind of a explanation of why that just happened, and it furthers the story. Um, that's one of the things that I'm probably having the most trouble with. I'm trying to give my readers when I get done with the book eventually uh, that kind of quick payoff and propel the story forward. Was that conscious on your part? Well, I wanted to do, I mean, a lot of, uh, there's quite a few authors that that have uh, relatively short chapters. Mine are, tend to be very short. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but that kind of keeps up the pace. And, uh, you know, also there's a whole sequence of small events that eventually are, are hurting the reader and the characters along towards bigger events. Um, you know, I had the pleasure a couple of years ago to go out to a screenwriting course in, in L.A. put on by uh, Robert McKee, who's, who's a famous teacher of screenwriters. Um, and, and the course was called The Story. And one of, the, you know, one of his basic uh, tenets is that you know, story is really about uh, not just the middle, beginning, and end, but it, but it flows like a, a good movie. And... Um, and there's there's ups and downs that are happening all the time. You just can't ratchet up the intensity to the max in a movie at the beginning, right. and just keep it there, keep the audience there the entire time. No, they'd be time. exhausted, and they'd be burned out by the. There is no climax because the entire thing is the climax. Um, so you know, it's typically about a character. Uh, there's some problem. The character does the least little thing that they can think of to solve that problem expends the least effort they can to solve the problem. And when they do that, it tends to not be enough. Some, there's some reaction on the other side, so that doesn't really solve the problem. So the story keeps being these ups and downs. They do something that, uh, that gradually gets them in worse trouble. And so it just progresses like that. Now, you're an author now. Is that how you see yourself? Are you uh, an author now? Is that who you are? Well, yes, I you know I I still have a real job too. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm a software engineer, uh, but uh, for the most part, yes, that's that's exactly I I enjoy doing it. I enjoy telling the story. Uh, so that is how I see myself. How many other stories outside the row agenda do you see yourself telling? I mean, personally, you know, the books that I'm writing right now, the book, anyways, isn't the book that I want to write. I'm kind of keeping that on a shelf till I get better at my craft before I tackle that. Is that kind of what you're doing as well? This is more your, I'm getting better as a writer and this is what I'm doing right now and I'm, I've got this big, massive thing out there or is it just coming to you as it comes to you? Uh, well, I'm going with the flow a little bit. There, yeah. like, I, like I said before, I would like to finish the Fantasies uh, trilogy that I started. Um, but, uh, but this one uh you know is really designed to uh, be an ongoing franchise so as as long as that continues to happen people uh get interested in the characters and want to find out more about the characters after this particular story is over I'll, i'm sure i'll keep uh, keep writing on it nbc hbo somebody comes knocking on your door are you interested um well absolutely I, you know actually right now i've uh i'm in the process uh 
of signing with uh, somebody that already has come knocking on my door, not a studio, but uh, uh, some quite uh, well-respected producers uh, from L.A. Uh, so they, <laughs> it's funny, they actually contacted me. And I'd been contacted before, but typically by people that were hoping to start out their first project and, and you know, maybe we work on it together type of thing. Right. Um, uh, but, uh, no, this was, uh, these guys got my attention because uh, one of them had read, uh, had read the first two books in, in my series, really liked them, said he'd like to uh, talk to me about the, uh, the film and TV rights. And, uh, and then uh, what got my attention is I, I really hadn't heard of him uh, before, uh, but he attached his and his partner's bios, and, uh, you know, and they've done movies like Independence Day and Die Hard and on and on, ah. and on down the line. So, so, uh, so that's progressing, and, uh, and uh, I think we're going to get a deal done here uh, before very long. And do you, do you uh, obviously the the was the, the trade off when you transfer to a different medium is that uh, the story may need to be changed to kind of reflect that medium, and there's a there's a creative control thing in there. I mean, do you do you feel that um, you're happy to kind of leave it in the in the hands of somebody else who uh, well, and trust them to deliver the vision, or are you go, are you going to want to stay closely associated with it? Well, you know. Uh, uh, one of the, one of the things I found out I mentioned I went to the screenwriting class with Robert McKee, and they asked me well, did I want to do the do the screenplay, and I said absolutely not, uh, you know because it's a totally different thing, and I could certainly yeah. I, I think I could uh, certainly do that, but but that's not what I want to do. I don't want to rework what I've already written. I want to keep writing uh, new stuff, and um, as far as you know the creative. Uh, differences between a book and what comes out in the movie, uh, you know, that's almost mandatory because because it's just such a different medium and you've got to pace things appropriately. You've got to have the right visuals. And books uh, have so much detail that you can't fit into a two-hour movie. Yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, I don't have a... Uh, you know, I don't feel like this is, this is my unchangeable baby. Uh, okay. You know, for, for one thing, like I said before, uh, you know, these books are written uh, for the purpose of entertainment, not for the purpose of being some uh, fantastic work of art. So right. you, you won't end up going all Alan Moore on us and disowning the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, well, the movie I, I or TV would, version. <laughs> my goal would be uh, that somebody that does it has, has produced things that are good before. And, yeah. and so they're going to try to make money off of it, which means... They're trying to entertain as many people as possible, and that fits with my goals. And now, whether you know, movies don't always come out like people plan them to, but uh, but they can probably do a better job of that than than I could. The series is the Row Agenda. His name is Richard Phillips. You can learn more about him at www.secondship.com. Simply go up to Amazon if you've got a Mac, an iPad, um, an iPhone, an actual Kindle. Use that app. Go to the Amazon store. It's right at the top of the best-selling list. You can't miss it. It's right there. First book's only going to cost you 99 cents. But like I said earlier, it's like crack. You're going to have to go buy the second ship. It's the, the second ship, book two of the Row series for $4.99. Totally worth it. Um, Richard, I'm a huge fan of your work. I think it's fantastic. I really look forward to the third book. And hopefully, you know, in the future, as we start talking more about self-publishing and and this industry as a whole will have you back on and talk about that as well well that'll be super and i really uh, really enjoyed uh, getting this chance to chat with you guys thank you richard thank you richard nice to speak to you you bet